Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 222. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, happy to be joined by Eli Knight. How's it going, Eli? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good, too. And I should probably clarify, you are Eli Knight as opposed to WWE professional wrestler LA Knight. That's the person I was really trying to book, but you know. Yeah, hey, um, I think we can make this work anyway. I'm glad to talk about pro wrestling if you want me to. That's fine. <laughs> it is funny. I'd never heard of that guy until you mentioned him. Then I looked him up and uh, yeah, and I actually thought that I had a decent pro wrestling knowledge, but he's I guess he's a little more current of one. So I wasn't. Aware. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you know, if there's one thing that I want to do here, it's help educate people about jujitsu. But if there's two things I want to do, it's also educate people about professional wrestling, the real sport of kings, the real grappling art that matters. But you know, we can talk jujitsu today if you prefer. No, we, I'm, I'm good either way, man. I, I support it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you know, on the topic of techniques that are maybe a little bit off the beaten path, we'd be talking about things we could discuss today. And you uh -huh. talked about compression locks. Now, I love this topic, but maybe before we launch into that, why didn't you just do a quick intro? I mean, you're a pretty well-known guy. I think most of our listeners know who you are, but just in case you got any new fans out there, do you want to quickly run down uh, who you are, where you train and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Eli Knight and uh, I've been doing jujitsu for like 28 years. It's going on 30, whatever it is. Uh, after a while, you just quit counting. Then I just recently got my third degree on my black belt from uh, Hoist Gracie. All my rank has come through his lineage directly from him. A year ago, I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. I lived my entire life prior to that in Kentucky. So I, I live and teach in Charlotte now at a, a place called Fit to Fight. And uh, yeah, so now I'm a, a Charlottonian or whatever you call them. And then I travel around a whole lot teaching seminars in addition to teaching my classes. And I'm probably most known for my social media presence uh, on YouTube primarily, but you know, also Instagram and all the other socials. And I've got quite a few instructionals out there with BJJ Fanatics, Jiu-Jitsu X, and then I have uh, other instructional resources on Patreon. So that's, that's pretty much me. Awesome. Awesome. And as we always do, when we get to the end of this, we'll go through and we'll plug that stuff. And I'll also make sure that there are some easy links that people can use to click and follow that stuff. But before we get into that, the topic du jour, you had mentioned that you've got some upcoming work on compression locks. And like I said earlier, I'm very excited about this conversation, but why don't you quickly just explain, you know, how this came about, why compression locks and, and what those mean to you? How do you define exactly what a compression lock is? Well, okay. Yeah, that's, that's a couple of good questions there. Full disclosure, I selected this to be my most recent instructional because there was not an instructional in the BJJ Fanatics catalog on this topic. So like, and it was one of the top, like probably three to five topics I was thinking about filming on. The one that I was really going for was going to be the, was crucifix. But then I looked at who had crucifix instructionals on BJJ Fanatics. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to compete in that. So <laughs> it was like Marcelo and Barrett Yoshida and guys. So, but compression locks have always been something that I, I like a whole lot. And I, I think that, you know, using that term, it, it gets a little clouded sometimes. It's an umbrella term to describe. It typically, compression locks are things like slicers. So when you think about a calf slicer, a bicep slicer, a, a ham sandwich, things like that. And then, you know, there's other categories of compression locks too, as far as like, kind of like cervical chokes would be sometimes compression locks. So it's a really interesting category of submission that, and whenever you look at it 
as a category, it becomes even more interesting because it's like, why are these so different than, you know, standard joint locks? You know, like you think about straight arm bar or a bent arm bar or, you know, categories of leg locks, uh, twisting, turning kind of things they are all directly attacking joints. Most of the time, compression locks don't though. Compression locks, they're painful, first of all. So you're going to get a lot more taps and training. You'll get taps in competition, obviously, even in the MMA, we've seen some successful compression locks, especially recently. But they're they're just kind of interesting, and they can definitely do damage. They're not just painful, but they can definitely do damage. But they're just an interesting kind of trap that you set. And so that that was what I really wanted to explore with the instructional was, you know, not only do I just want to show a, a bunch of random disconnected submission moves, but I want to show it as a concept and show you like, you know, how you can set these compressions up and use them as transitional movements, use them as traps, use them as, you know, like, points to that that somebody has to maneuver around because you really are kind of ensnared and some of the worst injuries i've seen people sustain from compression locks were because they were trying to rip free of them so it wasn't even the person like threw them on too hard or too fast or too aggressively it was that the recipient of it was actually trying to free themselves and wound up injuring themselves in the process of trying to free themselves from it so it's it's a fascinating thing to me too and I mean, that's probably the first compression lock I ever learned that most people ever learn is probably like a bicep slicer or a calf slicer. And, you know, those appear all over the place. And, um, but, you know, you get in deeper and deeper to the topic and you really wind up with some cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I guess we should start off here by just talking about some terminology. You mentioned that at a lot of gyms, compression locks are kind of seen as this weird, novel, unique thing that isn't really focused on or trained. Yeah. The majority of the breaks that you're going to learn, and I mean, I'm, I'm maybe not using the right terminology here. I know that Lachlan's been talking lately about how breaking is not really the right word for a lot of these joint submissions because you're technically kind of tearing more than breaking. Right. Although with compression locks, this may be a bit different because you are actually trying to break bone sometimes with those. Mm-hmm. But the main way that we've broadly categorized the different types of breaking submissions. You've got linear submissions, which is where you're basically trying to pull back straight in a linear manner on a limb. So an example of that would be like an arm bar, right? Or maybe just a straight ankle lock. You've got rotational submissions, which is where you're trying to take a limb and you're trying to put some twist on it, like a Kimura or a heel hook. And then you've got, like you said, compression, which is where you're not necessarily trying to pull something back in a linear fashion, you're not necessarily trying to twist, but rather you're trying to crush, right? You're trying to put so much pressure on something that there is enough of a threat of breakage that the person has to submit or give up. Sometimes compression moves can be pain submissions, like you talked about. The dogma has always been that those will never work at the highest level. Right. And I think as a result of that, compression locks don't really get studied a lot because there is that dogma about how, oh, you know, never use a pain submission. They're just not going to work at a high level. But there are absolutely compression locks you can do that are going to straight up break things. And they're absolutely nasty when you do them. I mean, you already brought up some good examples of those. And I guess it's also worth noting that you also have hybrid submissions. Sometimes a submission is not just a compression submission or a rotation submission. Sometimes it's a combination of the two, right? You might have a submission that's kind of like half arm bar, half compression or something like that. There's ways you can do that. So yeah. in general, that's how I look at a compression lock. You're basically using pressure to try to break something, or you can actually, for that matter, use pressure to try to choke someone. There's a lot of lung chokes that are kind of rare, but I mean, if you put someone in a tight body triangle and they tap, that's a compression choke, right? So you can absolutely choke people by compression too, a little bit harder to do, but that is something that's on the menu as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that last one too, because the one that I was so pissed at myself for leaving out of the instructional. And it was one of my favorite ones that I learned in like 1996. And it was, it's, I always call it the accordion squeeze. I think people often credit either Eric Paulson or Boss Rutten with popularizing it. And I think Boss Rutten called it the the shark machine. Like it's, it, whatever it is, it's this where you have someone in case of Katami and you, you grab their, their leg as well. And you kind of fold them around yourself using kind of like an inner thigh grip. One of my favorite moves from Keisa Katami and it is definitely a, a compression and I somehow left it out of the instructional, but it's definitely one of those that is compacting and it's a choke in the sense that like you can't get a full breath after a while. It compacts and restricts your breathing so much. And obviously, you know, it's painful preceding it, 
but yeah, it's, it's definitely one that you're going to tap from the not being able to get your next breath. And I, I would agree with everything that you just assessed about it, the compression locks and the, the nature of them and everything. I typically look at it as like when you're describing linear versus rotational, I always think about it as like, what's, what's the range of motion of the joint that you're typically trying to break? Because you have essentially, you know, like three categories, I guess, of, of joints that's, you got like a ball and socket joint, you have a hinge joint, and then you have whatever ankles and wrists are, whatever category that would be. So whenever you're looking at, you know, how to, to, and again, you know, I, I would probably agree, even though it's a little like pedantic, I would probably agree with what Lachlan is saying about, you know, it's not technically breaking because sometimes you're hyperextending or subluxing or, or whatever, you know, you're, or you're tearing something. So yeah, it's definitely when it comes to a lot of the, the limbs, when you're doing compression locks on limbs, it is going to be the threat of breakage of actual bones. So, you know, think about on a calf slicer, it may, or a hamstring or like a ham sandwich, either of those, it may attack the knee. It may hurt some ligaments in the knee, but most likely what you're looking at as far as devastating injuries, you're looking at tib-fib type breaks. You're looking at even femoral breaks are possible with, they're in the realm of possibility. When you're talking about bicep slicers, you're talking about humerus breaks, or even it can even like slip down to the forearm, depending on the direction that you apply the bicep slicer, then you're going to look at, you know, radial breaks or, you know, whatever. So it is that that's why they're such, they can be potentially such devastating moves, even though most of the time that people tap to them in training, it's just because they're so sharp and painful, you know? Yeah, yeah. Now, I want to expand upon this a little bit because you've, you've touched on this a few times about how compression locks sometimes get this reputation as being a pain-based submission. Right. Now, there's a lot of dogma around compression locks because, you know, we talked about this earlier. A lot of people will say, oh, you won't see that at the highest level or it's a pain submission. It's not going to work outside of the training room. Yeah. And there's some truth to that, I think. But I think there's also a lot of dogma there and maybe the potential to be a little bit disruptive. From my experience, when people say things like that, where they're very dismissive of something, yeah. usually in about five years, someone has innovated and changed the <laughs> game there. I mean, I I remember being told by a, a senior belt that, you know, if you if you tap to an ankle lock, basically you suck because no good person's ever going to tap to an ankle lock because it's not a real submission. That was, I mean, if you look at where leg locks have evolved to now, you're going to get completely different answers, right? I mean, uh -huh. you can tap out some of the best in the world with the leg lock if you get the right pressure and the right angle. It's just yeah. that the technology and the methods that we use are better. And I wonder if you feel that people are overly dismissive about compression locks, because I hear the same thing. People dismiss them. As a result, people don't train them. And I wonder if someone's going to come along as a, just a compression lock master one day and revolutionize the game. And it sounds like this is something that you've got on your mind. So I would want to hear you pontificate on this a little bit and what you think about the future of these moves. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. But it's, I think that I'm definitely on the same wavelength as, as you whenever, anytime somebody is too overly dismissive. Well, okay, there's two aspects to that, right? So we just saw Mikey Musumichi like basically try to twist somebody's entire leg off something that anyone would have tapped to with that, you know, wanted to preserve their ability to walk, you know? And then we saw the guy just refuse to tap and just let his, his leg get shredded. Same thing with any Magalhaes versus Craig Jones. You know, it's like sometimes people won't tap to these so-called legitimate submissions. Dudes may get their arm broken in an EBI overtime just so that they can win on ride time. You know, I mean, uh, I always re recall the uh, Tammy Musumichi versus Michelle Nicolini match where she got her arm just completely flamingo legged and like, you know, it's completely hyperextended 90 degrees the wrong way in an arm bar. And she kept on fighting, you know, to the end of the match. So, I mean, you know, there's that aspect of it too. On the other end of the spectrum, it's like, well, okay, so what's a legitimate submission? Okay. It's something that is likely to make somebody tap out of fear of, you know, preserving their limb or body health. Right. So now, you know, on the flip side of that, I've, constantly preaching to people don't you shouldn't be tapping from pain in training or, or in competition like pain taps if it's just pain with no threat of injury you shouldn't tap from that but what does the pain represent that's what you should be tapping from right if the pain is a signal that oh my arm's going to get broken oh i'm going to fall asleep oh my leg's going to get broken that's what you tap from if you're tapping because ow this doesn't feel good then you're probably a, a very low level like competitor or practitioner 
So, you know, that's the other aspect of it as well. Now, and again, I think that people who are overly dismissive of certain submissions, when they're provable to be effective, it's probably just a sign of their of their experience with that particular submission or their inexperience with it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, back in the day, there was a lot of things that, that you would say, you know, you're not going to tap anybody at high level with this, right? You're not going to tap anybody from, you know, just like a, what do they call it, like a mother's milk type of submission. But then, you know, you see Gordon Ryan essentially tapping people just from top pressure and the people he's tapping aren't any slouches. They're not white and blue belts. These are high level black belt competitors. So, you know, there is a time and a place and there is like that evolutionary process behind people just becoming more adept at the application of a submission and an understanding of how to apply that submission that, you know, changes the dynamic and the, the, the dogma surrounding it saying whether it's going to be valid or not valid. You know, they, the foot locks, ankle locks, leg locks, period, were stigmatized for a long time in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as being, even if they weren't, you know, stigmatized as being ineffective, they were stigmatized as being just lowly, you know, like there was this air about them that you were, you know, it's like almost cheating, like you were, you, you shouldn't do those because it's disrespectful, just whatever it was. And, you know, that game has completely, that narrative has been completely wiped out in this day and age. And that's just how things go. I think that it's, if you're going to be dismissive about topics like that, about, about techniques and things like that, then it's probably going to be to your own detriment because something's going to have its day in the sun for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you brought this up, this dogma that can sometimes surround certain techniques where they're looked at as, as low class or not being correct jujitsu. I mean, mm -hmm. my thought is always when you hear people say that about something, you should probably start studying that thing right away because <laughs> yeah. if people out there have such a low opinion of something that is actually legal, if they have such a low opinion of it that they won't even study it, then there's the possibility that by studying it, you can give yourself a massive asymmetric advantage over them. Uh -huh. Leg locks are the perfect example of this, right? For years, leg locks were looked at as ineffective or low class. And as a result, people just didn't study them. And all it takes is a somewhat competent leg locker to come around and just, just run a shop on these people for them to kind of understand that, oh, we, we made a serious lapse in judgment. And with compression locks, it is very much the same. I mean, yes, it's true that you don't see people tearing it up at high levels, winning with slicers very often, but the narrative in the training room is often that, ah, oh, these things, they're not high percentage or they don't work. As a result, they don't get studied. And as a result, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But man, if you do get really good at these things and you're training or you're competing against people who don't practice the defenses to this stuff because they don't think these moves are effective, you can catch a lot of people sleeping. And I mean, that's a great way to beat people that you otherwise might not normally be able to beat, right? If you can find a hole in their defense, it doesn't matter how good they are or how much better they are than you, because all it takes is one effective submission to tap them out. Oh, absolutely. I think that's definitely a, a, a big thing there. And that, that's why it's, it's such a disservice for anybody to be dismissive about any, anything like that. It's just, and it, it really at the root of the argument, it's really silly. And it makes you question what it is that they're, they're really being, you know, dogmatic against. I've caught people that I don't think I should have caught like with, with certain techniques. And it wasn't because it was just a trick. It wasn't, you know, it, was, it wasn't a fluke necessarily. I set the technique up with intention, but it was just something that they had a lack of familiarity with, you know? And, and so that's oftentimes is how you're going to catch people. I mean, look at, I, I always think about baseball bat chokes and loop chokes. Those are probably the chokes that put people out more than any other choke, I would say. And it, like in training, especially, you know, not even in competition, but in training. And oftentimes it's because those chokes can violate the mantra of position before submission. So you're passing somebody's guard, you get this baseball bat choke or loop choke slammed on you. And you're like, well, I'm passing guard. I've got to stay committed to this route that I'm on because it's the right thing to do. And then what happens, you, you make it all the way to side control or sometimes all the way to mount and you're asleep. You know, so it's like, it's happened to me on both ends. I've, I've put people out like that and I've been put out like that. And so, you know, it's just one of those things when you sleep on a submission like that, a lot of the time, when you devalue it and you say, well, I'm not worried about that, you know, because whatever, I mean, if you watch, if you watch only the Meow brothers, you would assume that toe holds just don't work. Right. Because <laughs> like they will never tap to a toe hold. Their foot will get bent 
in the most unnatural of directions and they'll never tap to it. And it's, it's partly because their flexibility in their feet, partly just because they just, they don't, they're not feeling it. They've been there too many times, whatever. Now you put me in a toehold and I'm going to tap to it. You know, you put most people in a sufficient good toehold. I mean, you know, Gordon Ryan just got his foot broken with a toehold. So it's like, you know, there, there's, I think that it's silly and for lack of a better word, ignorant to, to sleep on a lot of submissions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Toe holds are, to me, one of the scariest submissions in all of jujitsu. I mean, there's a lot of submissions that can really get you hurt, but with toe holds, the damage is so significant and it comes on so fast. Like, wow. I will tap to the idea of a toe hold. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I have no shame in just bailing out if I see a toe hold coming because it's not like a lot of other submissions where you have the ability to kind of create effective layers of defense and you can uh-huh. rely on some degree of muscle to slow down the submission yeah. if someone locks on a toe hold like all it takes is just a slight twist in their body and your ankle's broken or or your knee or both it's just not a good position to be stuck in you're right that some people like the meows just seem to be willing to eat it but again that's you know that's a sample of two <laughs> out of a much <laughs> yeah. larger group of grapplers and it's to this day that's why my right knee is is just it's a complete mess. It's, I'll probably need surgery on it. I'm just stubborn, but it's, it started back when I was trying to initially first teach myself beer and bolo. I didn't have anybody that would teach me beer and bolo that was any good at them. I even, you know, took some private lessons back in the day and I, I studied with some people and nobody was like really making it click for me. And finally it started to click a little bit. So, and it was mostly just from watching the Mendes brothers. And I was, uh, and so I was trying to teach myself beer and bolo. And I would just, I had this one training partner and he just had my number. He saw it coming a mile away and he would slam a toehold on me every time. And honestly, I think it was more, it wasn't so much him as it was my stubbornness because I got frustrated that I kept getting caught in it. And I was like, I'm just going to meow my way past this shit. And so that's what I was thinking. And I was like, nope, it didn't happen at all. I heard this, it sounded like ripping a few sheets of paper in there whenever he threw this toehold on me. And I just never got it fixed up but that's definitely one that is scary and i think that it's submissions like that are especially on the legs i think the scary thing about it too is it doesn't really hurt until it's too late the fuse on a lot of the leg locks is shorter than a lot of the upper body locks so you know you get put in a straight foot lock and it's not as it's not as scary as say a straight arm bar you know because it's like it sets in a little slower. You know, you don't feel it until you feel it and it's too late because the difference, the distance between pain and damage is shorter. I, I feel like on a lot of the, the lower body than it is on the upper body. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're 100% right there. I've noticed the same. There's just something about techniques like arm bars, for example, where you can intuitively feel how close to the danger zone you are Yeah, with foot locks, with the exception of maybe the knee bar with foot locks, it's very difficult to know unless you have the experience, it's very difficult to know how close you are to the danger zone. And that's where newbies can get screwed up because they don't feel anything until they do. Right. Whereas yeah. with something like an arm bar or even a lot of chokes, the danger zone is much more easy to see coming. Yeah, I, I would agree with that hundred percent for sure. Now, hey, let's talk a little bit about these compression chokes and compression locks. So you are in the process of making the instructional here. What are the the heavy hitters, in your opinion? What are the main compression locks, compression chokes that you think people should focus on if they wanted to add some of these things to their game? Yeah, actually, the instructional actually is out now with uh, BJJ Fanatics. So I wish I was still in the process of it, actually, because I, I would add some things to it. But I think that the ones to really, I don't know that there's a, a best place to start. I think that it's more of that about what the mindset is to start training them because what you'll see a lot of the time is that they're going to be caught in transitional movements. And, you know, arguably you could say that about a lot of different joint locks, but what's interesting about compressions is that there's, you know, you take, for example, the, the bicep slicer, a lot of times what will happen, nobody's just going to like put themselves into that position, but what will happen a lot of the time is that because of the way they're passing or because of you know, how you swept them or because of, you know, how you were, you're weaving your legs or pummeling your legs inside. It's just, it's opportunistic. And now the interesting thing to me about it is how most compression locks, there's definitely ones that can be done from a stable environment where you have to isolate, you know, you, you apply it, you isolate the position, you finish it. But there's, you know, you think about too, a lot of the time 
the way that people have to unravel themselves, the way people have to escape, they're going to actually put themselves into a more dangerous position. And so what I always like to look at is the connection between position, transition, and submission. So, and how these all kind of intertwine. And oftentimes, like what you'll see in like a lot of submissions is the way that people go to escape is going to, is that's going to subsequently like look, that's going to show you what your next transitional movement should be to your next position or into another submission. So sometimes that's how you chain together transitional movements or submission to submission to submission. So, and you know, so the example I was using is like the bicep slicer, there's oftentimes you'll use, you'll find a sweep off of that if somebody is trying to fight and remove their arm from it. Same thing with ham sandwiches. I think that the ham sandwich is probably my favorite compression lock just because it's, it can be applied from ostensibly negative positions sometimes and then uh, also used to either create sweep opportunities or other leg entanglements that kind of, you know, match into it uh, whenever somebody's trying to, to ease the pressure or to relieve the pressure from that initial ham sandwich. As far as compression chokes, there's some of the most deceptive categories of chokes because you're not exactly necessarily constricting the carotid, you know, you're not, you're not constricting the, the airway in the neck a lot of the time. So you think about cervical chokes, you think about compressions like that. And it's like, oftentimes whenever we say choke to begin with, obviously we mean strangulation. You know, sometimes we do mean constricting the airway, but oftentimes we mean strangulation and compression chokes are often strangulations. It's just that we're not going directly to the branching of the carotid artery in the neck. Sometimes it's in the chest. Sometimes it's even in the, the branching of the carotid in the waistline, you know? So it's, it's really interesting how that can actually happen. You can make somebody pass out from a compression around their waist. So you use the example of the body triangle earlier, and you absolutely can because there's a branching of an artery called the, I think it's called the inferior vena cava. And it's why a lot of times when pregnant women will, if they're flat on their back, will get lightheaded because the pregnancy that is like pushing on that artery sometimes. So they have to be careful about how they lie. And the reason I learned that is because I was doing a private lesson with an ER doctor that was a good friend of mine. And he was explaining that to me because I was teaching him neon belly and some details about neon belly. And I was like, sorry, dude, you're going to have to get off like for me to explain this because I'm starting to get lightheaded. And I thought it was weird. But he was like, no, it's because, you know, my shin was riding right down there on the inferior vena cava. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. That's why you can pass somebody out from that kind of compression choke, I guess we could say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked about the different types of breaks. You've got similar things with the different types of ways that you can choke someone. And, you know, you already brought this up that the we call things chokes in jujitsu, whereas for a lot of them, calling them a strangle is probably more accurate. You've right. got the kind of traditional blood choke or blood strangle, which is where you cut off blood to the brain by putting pressure on the carotid arteries. That's what in a and again, this is another example of where the dogma gets in the way. People often look at blood chokes as quote quote clean chokes right and the implication there is when people say that the implication is that if you're using a different choking mechanism there's something dirty or wrong that you're doing which i think is nonsense yeah but the other option of course there's a, the air choke the windpipe choke where you basically compress the trachea or the windpipe and you try to prevent the person from breathing which works as well but then there's also the the lung choke the body compression choke where you put so much pressure on their torso that they they can't either like you talked about in some situations you can actually block blood flow but failing that just by compressing the lungs enough you can make breathing such a struggle that the person can't get their oxygen now that might not be as fast a submission as doing a carotid choke but it's still just as viable and of course the other thing to bring up too is like we talked about before you can combine these there's no rule saying that the type of choke you're doing has to just be one sometimes you can combine the mechanics together uh, and often if you can do that if you can do a submission that has multiple different breaking or choking mechanics in one it's probably going to be a lot more effective. So I think this is an area where people don't think enough about this stuff about, you know, how can I compress the person's lungs and cut off their oxygen supply? Even if you don't get the tap, just the aspect that you're doing that, it can create panic. It can create openings. It can make otherwise good grapplers make dumb mistakes. So I think it's an underutilized tool for sure. Yeah, I'd, I would totally agree with that. I think just because something may be low percentage or lower percentage First of all, I don't even know what that means exactly. I'm just using that term because like low percentage for somebody might be 
an extremely high percentage move for someone else. So that that term's kind of ethereal anyway. But like what what you'll often see though is that just the threat of it, it has to be respected enough to cause movement, to cause reaction. And that's uh, you know essentially that's what we're doing at higher levels in jujitsu. You know, there's there's different levels to the game. It's like first you're just going to seize whatever opportunity presents itself in the most blatant of manners. The most flagrant thing is going to be what you're going to have to like jump on. It's going to have to have a big red flashing sign. Here's my arm. Take it for an arm bar. Here's a mount opportunity. This is when you're a novice at basic levels. Then you start to, as you progress, obviously you're going to start to need less of a warning sign. You're going to start picking up on these little indications that with with less of a, a notice to them. It's going to be a lot smaller of a window you'll be able to pick up on in these details. And then the next level is when you start to create those opportunities. So creating those opportunities oftentimes means I threaten this thing to get this thing, or I threaten this to, to get this to get that, right? So, and I think that that's why to me, oftentimes like compression locks get that job done because now there's certain ones that in training, depending on who I'm training with, you know, I'm, I might not even do it because it is painful and it, it does come on suddenly. And so it's, you know, it's kind of like wrist locks. It's like, you know, there's certain people I'm going to wrist lock in training that in certain ones that I won't just out of politeness, I guess, you know, or, or out of respect for their level. But, you know, there's with compressions, a lot of the time it's going to cause movement. You know, if, if somebody does a bicep slicer on you, I don't care who you are. You're not just going to sit there and do nothing, right? You're going to give some kind of reaction. And depending on the level of the person, there's only really two energetic reactions that you're ever going to get. And it's going to be either direct opposition to what you're doing to them, or it's going to be, they're going to go with it in a jujitsu type way and try to like figure out the problem. So, but even with the more technical response as in the latter case, there's only going to be certain routes they can take, you know? So as long as you understand that, you know, like what, that there are finite options then now all of a sudden you're kind of leading them down a path to like kind of a final result. And, you know, I think that that's how good jiu-jitsu should be played. So I always like, there's a, a great quote and it's actually by a, a catch wrestling guru named Billy Robinson that he's attributed with this quote of close two doors and hide behind the third. And I really like that idea in the grappling game. So we're like, it's that idea of like closing off their options and sending them right into the trap. Yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic insight there and something that I think is worth helping people understand why you do stuff like this. When you start off in jujitsu, often your focus is getting the submission, right? That seems to be the goal. Like you do this because you want to tap someone out. But as you train more and you get more experienced, you start to develop a bit of nuance there and you realize that a submission itself is not always just about getting the submission. I mean, of course, yes, you would like the submission. But sometimes the submission is a setup or a threat. And especially as your opponents get better and better, this becomes more important because like you said, against a good person, you're unlikely to just try a submission and then get it. You've got to break through consecutive layers of defense and responses. And so sometimes the reason you do a submission, it's not necessarily because you expect you're going to get the tap out of it, but it's because you're trying to elicit a response from your opponent and start taking away their options and make their responses more predictable to you. And that's where a slicer can be great because yeah, maybe maybe the slicer itself is not a submission you necessarily think you're going to get, but you're trying to use it to force some predictable responses out of your opponent to make it easier to know what's coming up next. And like you said, to, to stay one step ahead so that your true intentions can line up and then you can catch them with something else. Or alternately, as you brought up earlier, Sometimes you can't just smash on a slicer. Sometimes you're doing something else and then the slicer just emerges. You know, common examples would be if I'm on top of you and I'm trying to arm bar you and you clasp your hands together. I mean, yes, I can sit there and I can spend 10 minutes trying to break your grip or I can just switch to a bicep slicer. Or similarly, if I omoplata you, right, and you roll, yes, I can get up on top and I can omoplata re-roll or do something else. Or I can just take advantage of the fact that I'm probably sitting on your arm and I can just bicep slicer you, right? So sometimes the slicer emerges organically, or sometimes it's something that, like you said earlier, it's a setup for something else. And really what you're trying to do is use that to bait your opponent into a more predictable response. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that causing your opponent to be more predictable is a huge thing. I always talk about the the idea of uh, commitment. You know, if you can get 
that person so committed that they become target fixated, then they become easier to predict. They're they're easier and easier to manipulate. That's been my running joke is that it's, it's my jujitsu advice and my relationship advice is that you get the person more committed and you can manipulate them easier, you know? So it's like, but the, the idea behind it is that if I stay target fixated on something, then my actions are going to be easily predictable. I'd much rather defend myself against the guy who has his arm, has his right arm cocked back running from 10 feet away to hit me than the staccato boxer with good footwork and head movement. You know, like one of those guys is going to be a lot harder to predict their behavior versus the other. So that's, that's kind of the same concept is that, you know, if this person is, has a lot on their, their menu and they have a lot of options from the position that they're in, they're a much more dangerous person than if they're, they're really struggling to just keep their head above water in a certain position that I've kind of trapped them into. Or if on the flip side, they might not even have to be in a, a bad position. They can be in a good position, but if they're, they're hell bent on one specific thing, then they're a lot easier to predict and a lot easier to theoretically defend against. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Hey, let's get into some specifics here. You know, we've talked a lot about slicers and these are probably one of the most obvious examples of a compression lock. You know, you're literally the guy who made the instructional on this. So you're the first person I'd want to ask, what are some of the main details and and main key concepts behind getting a slicer properly? I'm going to guess that for a lot of people in the audience, they've only studied these things in a very passing manner and probably don't really do them that often. So I would definitely want to hear from you, you know, if you were to kind of give someone the executive summary of of how slicers work, what are the most important things that you want to do if you want to play those moves effectively? That's a good question. I think that it, it will vary somewhat from technique to technique, you know, cause the, but there are going to be certain things whenever it comes to an actual, like limb compression. So in the example of either, let's say a calf slicer, a ham sandwich or a bicep slicer. And you know, there's, there's other ones, there's like shoulder slicers, there's like other like weird things, but those are probably the three most common calf slicer, ham, ham sandwich, and then bicep slicer. Oftentimes what those are going to require, the, the direction of the limb that you're, you're inserting is going to really matter a lot. So in most of those cases, you can use your forearm or you can use your shin. And typically what happens in a compression lock, a lot of the time is it's going to be the bony part of your limb versus the meaty part of their limb. So, you know, think about in a bicep slicer, it's going to be either my shin bone or it's going to be my forearm. Calf slicers, same thing, hamstring or ham sandwiches, same thing. So getting the, the direction and the depth. So how far my limb is inserted toward their joint is going to also matter. If I'm shallow, then the pressure is not going to be as much. If I insert my shin deep into the crease of your elbow, and then compress the limb around that or deep into the area behind your knee for a calf slicer or hamstring slicer, then if it's deep enough, then once the compression sets in, the, the pain is going to be there sooner and the separation of that joint potentially is going to be more threatening. You know, And then because the pressure is building up, it's not just more painful, but it's also more of a threat on the, the weakest bone in that area. So you know, I think that the direction that the limb is facing, oftentimes people get too meaty of a part of their limb inserted. And so now it's just meat on meat, you know, so it's, it's just, there's a lot of pressure, but you never really feel that threatened. It's not that sharp, you know, whereas if your, your shin bone is directed into the sensitive area, then it's going to be a lot sharper. It's going to be more painful and the, it's going to be more obvious what the attack is. So, you know, I would say that looking at that now, and then you have also in the, think about in the category of like the the bicep slicer from the standard arm bar that you mentioned a while ago, which is one of the most common tactics for breaking the grip. You know, if you watch any EBI over time, you're, they're going to start in the spider web position. The person's going to have their hands clasped. And at some point there's probably going to be an attempt at that pressurized break. You know, they may not be hanging on to it for the pressure lock, but they're going to use it at least to break the grip. So in that case, again, if your form isn't pulled back tight enough and deep enough into the wedge of the elbow, then you're going to have a hard time finishing that lock, I think. And then, you know, also the rotation will matter a lot of the time too. If I'm using my forearm against for a, a bicep or forearm slicer, then whenever I insert that in deep and then I can press the limb around it, 
it's going to be flat at first, but the, the rotation and the upward direction or downward direction is going to determine a lot of that pain and a lot of the damage that will be done because you know once it's compressed, then I'm I'm creating the spacer that I have inserted and I'm I'm extending the area of that. So <laughs> these are always such difficult things to describe in in jujitsu whenever you're just using verbal explanations of it without showing the demonstration. So it's it's kind of difficult, but that's basically where I would kind of start with it from a technical standpoint. Yeah, that's, that's actually why I love the verbal definitions because you have to kind of really back up and think about what you're saying, right? When you have when you have the benefit of visuals, it's very easy to just say, "Here's what I'm doing, just copy me." But when you're using words, you're basically, I mean, you're literally going in blind, right? You have to back up your explanation to the point where it makes sense, even without the person being able to see you. And that can be very challenging to do, but it, it always results in interesting conversations because everything kind of turns into more of a, a talk about concepts and strategy. And that's the kind of stuff that I always like to dig into. But yeah, you, you bring up a good point here about how, you know, basically you want to make sure that you're putting something in there to do the slicer that that's harder, right? You don't necessarily want meat on meat because it's, it's going to be too soft to get that pressure. The way I often think of a slicer is it kind of reminds me of like a nutcracker where, you know, you've basically got like a hinged joint. And then if you can get something in between that joint, so if you can get like your own arm into the crook of their elbow or into the crook of their knee, that's usually an indication that there's the possibility of a slicer there. But you bring up a good point that you kind of have to get the angle right, because if it's the the soft part of your arm or the soft part of your leg that you've threaded through, then the pressure might not be the same. So um, I think that's a really good point. But yeah, that's what I always look for is if I can, if I can get something into the crook of their elbow or their knee, like into the hinge, that's usually an indication that some sort of slicing pressure can be put on them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, that's right on the money. And it's an interesting way to look at it too, because when you start recognizing those moments of opportunity, that's, I think, whenever your lens is really starting to develop and, and that's going to, ultimately, I think it's going to have a perspective shifting impact on your overall game because now you have not only a new tool for the arsenal you have a whole new new concept you have a whole new approach to certain things and a, an aspect of the game that you maybe didn't have before you know yeah yeah now a question that i always like to ask when we get into these more technical discussions is is there a consideration around rule set where you would play this strategy differently. So you already talked about EBI rules, but even just a broader conversation, are there any considerations regarding compression locks if you're talking about playing them, say, in the gi versus no gi versus MMA versus self-defense? I mean, I've always thought of compression locks like this as being um, something that are, are very similar across the board here, but I would want to hear your thoughts on this and whether you think maybe you have to play them differently depending on the rule set. Yeah, I think that the biggest determining factor, first of all, is is it legal? Because I I, I don't mm -hmm. even remember right now with IBJJF because I, I just it, as years go by, I get more and more removed from IBJJF standards. But like, I don't remember what exactly the belt level is. I, I think for a while, it I was, think it's brown belt. I think it's brown. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I, I believe that it's. I know for brown and black, it's it's pretty much fair game. Most most compressions are on the table. But as long as, you know, they, they don't reap and they don't, you know, whatever. I think that as far as, you know, considerations, actual rule sets about what level you're allowed to do them, if they're allowed at all, what I would say the biggest consideration would be is like gi versus no gi. Obviously, you know, striking versus not striking, you know, in the terms of MMA or combat jiu-jitsu, because, you know, there are, you know, certain things that are going to be opportunities for more exposure and more opportunity for compression locks to be applied. And, and, you know, like I said, there are going to be some that you are tied into it because one of the issues with compression locks a lot of the time is that it, it they often take multiple limbs, you know? So like, whereas like, I'm usually going to take like almost all my limbs to complete some kind of compression lock in, in most cases. So like, I'm going to be kind of tied up. So if there's striking involved, then that can be problematic depending on what position we begin and end in. Obviously, with the gi versus no gi, the idea of the friction that's involved, sometimes that can play into your favor because it's going to be harder for the person just to slip out. But it can also, you know, fight against you sometimes because in the case of where we were talking about, you are trying to insert into wedges of the body, you know, now there's more material. So that's going to kind of 
that could possibly create an obstacle as far as the friction that's that's involved in it. And, you know, so it's, it becomes kind of interesting whenever the is involved because it can enhance it or it can be, I'll be a detriment depending on what particular one you're, you're going into. My favorite modality of all jujitsu to this day is, is no gi grappling. You know, uh, I, I do like the striking considerations. I like everything from submission grappling, EBI or ADCC rule sets to submission only. I like those kind of modalities better. I love combat jujitsu modalities and MMA, but you know, so for those, I, I think that as long as you're not putting yourself into too much of a negative position whenever you're going into it and staying too committed to that particular limb and and opening yourselves up, yourself up for you know some kind of like impact attack from the other person, then you know that's that would be the a big thing to kind of watch for. Got it. Now, what about body type and body size? Do you think there's any considerations with compression locks where maybe they work better or worse for people with certain particular body types, or maybe they work better or worse depending on your opponent's body type? Would want to get your thoughts on that. Oh, absolutely. I think whenever whenever you're going with somebody, if you just have a, an average body type, then you know that's where a lot of jujitsu is created. Everything changes when depending on how long or short your limbs are, how big around your limbs are, how big around your trunk is, how much do you weigh, how short are you? So, you know, there's, but you know, that's the beauty of jiu-jitsu is that everything can be modified to some degree to fit almost everybody. Now, I will say things like the the accordion squeeze, the, the thigh master, whatever you want to call that kind of compression choke, for lack of a better word from Casey Katami that I was mentioning earlier, I think it's interesting because it typically works better on bigger people. Sometimes you get somebody who's just super skinny and wiry and you can wrap them completely around your body and they're still able to function. They're still able to get breath and, you know, so you're not compacting because there's no mass there to compact. So a lot of times on bigger guys, that one actually works better. You know, things like bicep slicers, whenever, you know, you have, if you have massive calves or, you know, massive limbs and you can't wedge what needs to be wedged into that limb to be able to, to apply the technique. And yeah, obviously that's going to be a problem. So, you know, whether depending on the amount of fat or muscle or lack thereof on a particular limb, it's going to be easier or harder to apply these. So size, like every other time, definitely matters. But, you know, what you will see a lot of the time though, it's a lot of these can still be applied and can still be modified. There are going to be weird ones, you know, like on, on my instructional, I mentioned, I actually do several mentions about the Barata Plata and the Tarika Plata, even though those aren't, aren't technically, those aren't technically compressions, they're adjacent to the compression. So I like to show how a similar setup can be applied and then used for actual rotational attacks on joints, or can be finished as a compression lock. So, but you know, again, whenever you're applying those, you're, you're not going to pull those off on somebody that weighs 350 pounds and they've got, you know, 25 inch arms. So it's, it's just, you got to pick the right tool for the job. But I think that typically, you know, there's a wide, I always look at what is the application for the widest variety types of bodies and a lot of compression locks work really well in that environment. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, because the compression locks work by generally, if you're talking about a slicer, you're basically folding a limb over onto itself. Right. That mechanic is going to work pretty consistently regardless of body type and body size. You know, if you're looking at certain types of chokes or certain types of other limb submissions, sometimes the, the length of their limbs versus the length of yours becomes a factor. But if you take someone's arm and you fold it over into a slicer position, it almost kind of doesn't really matter that much how big or how small they are because the length of their limb doesn't really factor in, right? It's it's all about trapping something in the crook of their elbow or in the crook of their knee and and applying braking pressure. And that's going to work, I think, pretty consistently, even if your opponent is a lot bigger or smaller than you. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And, you know, that's the thing too. I think that, you know, maybe there's a, a benefit to having that padding whenever you are talking about the the most devastating injury that can occur from it is a break of the bone, obviously, you know, or not obviously, maybe that having more padding is going to potentially like stave that off. But at the same time, we are talking about compression. So it's not only my limb versus your limb. It's my limb and your own limb versus your own limb. <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting kind of combination that way. Yeah. So one other thing I'd want to pick your brain on here, we mentioned earlier that 
with a lot of submissions, you can have different mechanics that make the submission work. So for example, you might have a move that is kind of like a combination of a linear break with a bit of rotation. And I'd mentioned that with compression, sometimes you can apply an aspect of compression to other submissions to make them more effective. So on this topic, one of my favorite examples would be a short arm bar. Basically, the variation of an arm bar where instead of grabbing their hand and holding onto it, you kind of try to tuck their hand into your own armpit. You do that and you can actually get a degree of compression power. And now the person has to think not just about, oh boy, what about my elbow joint? Now they also have to worry about a bone break, right? So you've taken a a linear submission like an arm bar and by tucking their arm into your armpit, you can actually get a degree of compression power as well. You could do the same thing with a knee bar, right? You can do a short knee bar where if you can get their, their foot into your armpit, it's a very, very different experience for the person than if you're just grabbing their foot with your hands. And I would want to know if you've thought about this before and if there's any other types of common submissions you can think of where adding an element of compression can turn up the dial a little bit and make it more powerful. So in the terms of what you were talking about, as far as like compressions to kind of enhance more, I guess, standardized locks, I didn't really consider it like what, what you were talking about with like the short arm bar. Like I always call that like, a, I think it's the same as like a shotgun style arm bar or a knee bar in the same kind of thing. But I have thought about that a lot as far as like the, the compression combination or enhancement on other things so like in the the case where i was uh talking about the tarika plata or the brada plata i think that they're because they are so adjacent to a compression lock especially like a bicep slicer a lot of the time that those would probably fall into that category and the, you know obviously too sometimes you can set things like that up and if you have a little bit more of a novice referee and a competition they may call you if you're an underbelt, uh, uh, white, blue, or purple, whenever you're setting up a Tarika Plata, which would be a legal submission because it's a it's a shoulder attack, they may call you on it because it looks too much like a compression. So you know that that's that's one of those where I think that it is an enhancement. And then you think about something like the genie style Kimura, like the the Kimura where basically if you're from side control and you lace the arms all the way through, and now you're using a folded arm around that arm lock. A lot of the time, people are tapping from the pressure that it creates on the forearm versus the actual like shoulder attack of the Kimura. And it can be both. It can, it can be either. It's just, it kind of depends on who, what they're going to tap from first and what the actual threat is. And, you know, because it does have, because it does have elements of both. Now they do have to have multiple concerns about not only is this painful, but this is, you know, and not only is it attacking my, my shoulder, but it's also kind of like a lot of pressure on my forearm. And I don't know if that's going to break before my shoulder gives way. So even on standard Americanas and Kimuras, a lot of the time, you know, you think about that's, those are supposed to be shoulder attacks because you're, it's a rotational joint. You're attacking the ball and socket joint of the shoulder. Well, the problem a lot of the time is that the shoulder has a lot of muscle mass and the shoulders are really strong. It's the strongest part of the arm typically. So the thing that's going to give way, it's going to go down that kinetic chain. And usually the thing that's going to give way beforehand is it's going to probably break the humerus, which happens a lot of times in uh, Americanas and Kimuras, which is a really disgusting and like <laughs> like tragic injury whenever that occurs. But it is an interesting thing to think about, about how compressions can actually compound different attacks on standardized submissions. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I actually love that variation of the Kimura where you basically, I think you called it the genie. Yeah. At, at our gym, it's funny. We call it the Jamericana because we've got a guy named Jeremy who kind of popularized <laughs> that move in the gym, <laughs> but it is basically where like you kind of like almost like cross your arms over the, over the Kimura and you fold your whole body over top of it. And yeah, it adds that element of slicer pressure onto it too. I always love finding those moments of synergy where you figure out a way to apply multiple different different breaking mechanics to the same submission or multiple different choking mechanics to the same choke. I mean, it just, it feels to me like if there's a lot of things threatening the person at the same time, you're probably more likely to put them in danger with the submission and get the tap than if you're just relying on one mechanic to get the submission. So really cool conversation, but yeah, that was an awesome chat, man. Thanks so much for coming by before we tie this up. Was there anything else you wanted to say on the topic of compression locks that we didn't talk about yet? No, man, we, we hit a lot of like, we, I think we covered a lot of conversation about it and it's really fun for me to get into a deep dive about it because even though I've got all my own thoughts about it and I wind up teaching and I share 
thoughts and with training partners and I get other people's inputs, it's nice to really have to sit down. And like you said, when we're dealing with strictly the verbal component of it, you really have to take like the thousand yard uh, step back and, and really analyze things. That's why that's part of why I like teaching so much and why I teach the way that I teach, because you know, I, I came up a lot of times under instructors who are just like, basically, you know, do it like I do it, you know, like this is how the move is do it like this and then showed me. And so, you know, in today's like kind of environment, especially the degrees to which I operate in on, on social media, a lot of the time or, or whatever, I'm having to really go into like the extreme detail of explaining how things operate. So I have to really examine things under the microscope. So these kind of conversations always will enhance my ability to, to not only convey the mechanics of the technique and detail that out, but also kind of like to get on the principal basis, which I think is the ultimate behind everything else. So I really appreciate the conversation, man. It was a great one. You too. I'm glad we were able to make it happen and glad we were able to do it with such a cool topic. Now we talked about this briefly at the beginning, but let's take this time to tell people where they can find you, where they can pick up those instructionals. If people want to check out your work, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. My girlfriend's been getting on to me about not being better about plugging the things I actually pay. So my instructionals, BJJ Fanatics, I've got, a, I think I, that was my seventh instructional that I just filmed. So I've got a lot of really fun ones, a lot of, several of them are on self-defense topics, but several of them are on like more sporty things like this. And then my Patreon, I give away just probably, I'm a big over sharer. So I, I, put a lot of stuff on my Patreon for just a few bucks a month. If anybody wants to join that, my YouTube channel is probably where everybody knows me best from. So on all these different platforms, whether it's Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, whatever, it's always uh, Night Jiu-Jitsu, K-N-I-G-H-T Jiu-Jitsu. Um, I've got a, a choke instructional with uh, Jiu-Jitsu X out there. So those are the the main things. I'm probably forgetting. Uh, I've got a huge, robust, almost full curriculum kind of thing with the Budo brothers called the Jiu-Jitsu Deep Dive. So if you want to check that out, it's a it's hours and hours of instruction on that that can almost operate as a standalone curriculum for beginners to intermediate. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there and I'm probably forgetting, but those are probably the main ones. Nice. Awesome. Well, as I always do, I'll put all of those links in the show notes. I know that if people are like me, they're probably commuting while listening to this or they're on the bathroom or something. And so yeah. it can be a little bit hard to remember everything that was said. So what I'll do is in the show notes, I'll put links to your YouTube, your Instagram, your instructionals, your Patreon. So if anyone wants to check out uh, Eli's stuff, just pop open your player, go to info or whatever it's called. And there should be a bunch of links there. One tap or one click should be all you need to, to find Eli. Should be an easy thing to do. You can give him a follow and support his work. And of course, in those notes, I'll also put a link to our stuff, as I always do. In case you don't know, pretty much everything we make, you can get on bjjmentalmodels.com. So really easy, one-stop shop to find everything. I'm presuming, again, that if you're listening to this, you probably are familiar with our podcast. It is, to the best of my knowledge, the most popular of its kind in the world. It's sort of hard to say, but that's what they tell me. Again, over 200 episodes of timeless educational content on there. Recommend you go check out the back catalog if you haven't already. That's also where our newsletter is. I really recommend you sign up to our newsletter if you haven't already, you can get that on the website too. And of course, that's where you can also sign up for our premium stuff. I mean, if you're plugging the, the paid services, how we pay the bills, everything that we have talked about so far is free. Our premium stuff is where you take it to the next level. Sign up for BJJ Mental Models Premium and you basically get three main things. The first thing is you get our entire course library. There's over 50 hours of masterclass style, uh, conversational style courses, kind of like what we do on the podcast, but much more structured with the goal of kind of taking you through a curriculum. So it's not just me. We've got some courses on there with great people like Rafael Lovato Jr., Claudio Doval, Margo Ciccarelli, John Thomas, big list of them. So it's a really awesome service. We also offer coaching. You sign up there, send us your rolling footage or your competition footage. We'll break it down. We got a really great team of black belts who do those reviews. I've mentioned over the last few episodes, but we just onboarded a whole bunch of new coaches, including uh, Brianna St. Marie, Marco Ciccarelli, Amanda Bruce, Rachel Ranshaw, quite a few of them. So really awesome value for what you get. And then you also get a, an invite to our exclusive community, which is, as I've said before, one of actually the main reasons a lot of people sign up is just to get into the community. It is that useful. Again, there's a free trial. So if you don't believe me, easiest thing to do is just try it, see for yourself. If you don't like it, you don't have to pay a cent. 
Again, you can get all of that at bjjmentalmodels.com or just check the link in the show notes. But Eli, man, great chat. I really enjoyed this one. I love these nuts and bolts conversations, especially on topics that people honestly don't talk enough about. So man, I can't thank you enough for making the time and having this chat with us here today. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure, man. I really enjoyed it and I uh, really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thanks, man. And thanks to the listeners too. Really do appreciate the time that you spend with us here every week. And we'll talk to you next time. See you soon.